Welcome to the show. I've got a great guest today, Rich Wilkes, screenwriter. And uh, Rich has been in the business for over 30 years. And he's helped write some of my favorite movies, including The Dirt, which is the Motley Crue biopic. And he also helped ghostwrite some scenes in Billy Madison, which is another one of my favorites. So his most successful movie was actually Triple X, the Vin Diesel action movie. So quite a good variety of screenplays there. And uh, this was a really fun episode for me because I love movies and TV. And I actually wanted to be a screenwriter at one point. And it's interesting to hear about what goes on behind the scenes and how you can spend so much time working on something and then it never even gets made. So I hope some of these projects that Rich is working on now see the light of day soon because they sound great. And uh, he'll tell you all about them. So just listen up. Welcome, Rich Wilkes to the Chuck Shoot Podcast. How you doing, Rich? I'm doing great, man. How you doing? Great. So, uh, yeah, you have uh, you live in California, California kid, but you actually spent some time in New Jersey and Switzerland. Is that right? Yeah, I did. I was born in, in Princeton, uh, left there in the second grade because my stepfather was uh, a bigwig with the Boy Scouts and the headquarters of the World Scouting Organization, the headquarters of the Boy Scouts is in Geneva. So we lived there for uh-huh. three years from like third uh, grade to fifth grade and then moved to Southern California. Do you have any memories of Switzerland? I've never been there. I'd love to go, though. Oh, yeah, man. It's amazing. You got to go. They speak four different languages within a really tiny country. Uh, There's, you know, an Italian section, a French section, a German section. And then they have this old Swiss language, Romanche. Uh, It's got the best of everything. It's the cleanest country you've ever. It's like Disneyland. Okay. They they literally steam clean the streets every night. Wow. That sounds really good. It looks so cool in the pictures, especially in the summer when all the snow's melted. And it's just these green, grassy hills. And yeah, yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it looks amazing. So then you, yeah, you lived in California and you're, you grew up kind of a shy, dorky kid. You're obsessed with David Lee Roth, David Lee Roth. And then I wanted to ask you, like, what, but what kinds of movies and TV shows did you grow up watching? Like, what were some of your favorites as a kid that might have influenced uh, your work later? Well, should we back up and, and, you know, mention some of the stuff that you're talking about, or are you going to do that in an intro? Uh, which stuff? The David well, Lee- like uh, who I, what I do and all that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do that in an intro. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, the people know. Trust me. I'm going to put it all over, uh, you know, I'm going to put your resume basically on the uh, poster for this. So, yeah. Okay, good. Um, uh, early influence... Uh, Say it again. I, well, I, just like what what TV shows and movies were you a fan of as a kid? I know for me it was like Indiana Jones and Star Wars, you know, early, all those kinds of things. I'm assuming some of those were probably the same for you. Yeah, but the things, the, the ones that stuck in my head were less of the Star Wars, you know, sort of variety. I loved all of that stuff. But the stuff that has more of a lasting impact is the stuff, you know, that just gets into your vernacular, like a Caddyshack. Or for me personally, a lot of the, I don't know, more like uh, Peter Weir's Gallipoli, you know, mm. World War One movie from the late 70s uh, with Mel Gibson in it, which is so freaking good. Those kind of movies stick with me and got under my skin. And, and I think those fascinate me more than, you know, having invented Star Wars. What about like Kubrick? Were you a fan? Because he was big in the in that time, like the shining and clockwork orange and those kinds of things when, when yeah. did you discover those ones yeah uh, there was uh you know i had older brothers so they would put on uh taxi driver for, uh, long before mm. i was you know i should be watching it 
So, uh, you know, we would track down uh, Clockwork Orange at the VHS, you know, rental place. And then uh, I was around for when uh, uh, Full Metal Jacket came out. I saw that in theaters and, you know, just uh, had a really geeky uh, interest in the movie. I had almost my, my uh, uh, what do you call it? The the theater, the drama department guy in my high school wanted me to audition for that movie because they made it an open casting call to be in Full Metal Jacket. You really? You're, you know, shoot yourself on videotape, send it in. They're looking for unknowns. And I'm like, well, shit, you know, that sounds awesome. But it's 1983. Where do you get a, a video camera? Oh. Where do you, how do you record anything and send it off? So I never wound up doing it. But uh, yeah, that would have been that would have been awesome. So you were but, in the drama department. So did you do like theater and plays and all that in high school? Sure, yeah, we were. I, I was doing plays and and then uh, you know little movies on my own. You know, Super Eight with uh, friends. Oh, uh, stop motion animation, that sort of thing. But then it was it was uh, acting in uh, college and in high school. I got a theater degree from Santa Cruz for my undergrad. Okay. Yeah. Cause I think this was a really important pivotal moment in your life. And, um, I find it inspiring because I remember when I was in high school, I actually wanted to, I told my guidance counselor, I wanted to be a screenwriter. And he told me, um, all those people either went to Harvard or Yale and I did not have the grades to get into those. So I kind of gave up on that dream, but, and I think you might've had kind of a similar thought that you couldn't do it, but then you were in college in Santa Cruz and your friend's dad worked on mash and you're like, and you, that was the first time you realized like, Oh, People can actually work on TV shows and movies. This is a real thing. Yeah. It, it, isn't that weird that you get this impression that it's an insular world, but then you find out like, you know, Tom Hanks is from Indiana or what have you. And you sort of think of him as, you know, some kind of legacy. Right. But he's not. He's just some kid who showed up over here and, and figured it out. And uh, it's it's frightening to think that you can get into the music business or stand up comedy or movies without knowing anybody. But that's literally how most people do it. There's not a lot of, you know, most of the people that I've even met have just come from Iowa or Texas or San Diego or wherever and have no relationship to the business uh, and figured it out on their own, which is which is nice to know it's possible. Yeah, but they, it sounds like a lot of them did have to move, right? You can't, there's not a lot of movie and TV business in Indiana or Iowa or whatever. Yeah, I don't know anymore because of, you know, now as a screenwriter, you can just submit your stuff That's through true. email in a PDF format. Um, if they want to have a meeting with you now, you could Zoom it. Now that's, you know, pretty common. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, to work on stuff, to work on productions for sure. But if you want to just be uh, uh, starting out as a director, you can direct your own stuff and you can write your own stuff wherever you are. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, essentially, I think you eventually need to make your way out here. Yeah, for sure. So, but that was around that time you decided you're going to your friend's dad, you know, kind of showed you that it was possible. So you decided to go for it and you go to LA and you audition for, uh, what was it game shows and, and you were extra in TV and low budget horror movies. Are there any memorable shows or movies you were a part of then? Or do you have any stories from that era that jump out at you? Yeah. The, um, the, the TV shows I did were, uh, I was on, a show called The Dating Game. I got to be Bachelor number three. Um, I was an extra on a Robert Hayes show called Starman, which was a TV spinoff of the John oh, yeah. Carpenter movie. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was a, a zombie in a movie called The Dead Pit, 
which people remember from that era because it had a VHS box. And when you lifted it up off the shelf, the zombie's eyes would flash red. Which oh, was the, that's the cool. Gimmick with that one. Um, so I got to, uh, uh, you know, spend uh, several nights in an insane asylum shooting that up in the, in the Bay Area in an abandoned uh, mental institution shooting the, the zombie movie. But anything you can do where you can just hang out and see what's going on makes it all real to you. Mm-hmm. And you can go, well, shit, that guy, what does he know that I don't? You know, he, you know, picked up the phone, called somebody, met somebody, whatever. You work as an extra on the thing. You're going to get to know the PAs. You're going to get to know the craft service people or the art department or makeup or something. And just, you know, work it from there. And so, yeah, so you learn a lot from being even just an extra by watching what's going on on the sets and things. And yeah, I don't know if it's practical knowledge, but it's it, it just demystifies the whole thing. So you don't think that that you have to be some kind of genius from Harvard to, to be able to work in movies. You know, these are largely people that have scraped together money however they can to shoot this movie or, you know, the TV show uh, the game show, whatever they are. It's just like, it's just a bunch of dummies, just like you and me. doing stuff. <laughs> Anybody could do it. I'm definitely a dummy, but this was smart. This is not dumb. In 1990, tell me about this Disney thing. They had this outreach for, it was like multicultural writers and you wrote them and you told them, but you were honest. You said you're not from a different culture, but you're from the counterculture of punk rock. And the letter amused them enough that they read your screenplay. I don't know. They didn't do anything with it though. No, they did. They they uh, they took me out of the competition. They read the letter, took okay. it out of the competition, but were intrigued enough to read the screenplay. And then they optioned it. They uh, they they gave me enough money that I was able to drop out of college and start becoming a a, a professional screenwriter. So wait, so, which which movie was that? Did they ever make it, or they just optioned it? Let me think. That one I wound up making uh, directing on my own a few years later. Uh, it was a movie called Glory Days. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. We'll get to that. But so the first one they actually made, uh, somebody made, was the Stone Age, right? Yeah, that's right. That okay, was yeah. another one that I had written in college or in graduate school uh, with my buddy Jim, who directed it. Um, and that one as well. Somehow, you know, it, the snowball effect of of getting my my thing read by those people and saying I was from the counterculture of punk rock um, that led one thing to another where they wanted to read another script. And eventually we got that one made at the third or fourth company we were at. Okay. Yeah. So funny. I, um, I was trying to watch some of your movies, you know, to in preparation. So I re re uh, watched that one. I think I saw it when it came out, but it's so funny how that one, I mean, I still think it's funny, but I can see how a lot of people would not want to make that movie today. And, uh, right. You know, I mean, it's interesting now we'll get to the dirt later too, but, uh, definitely that one. I'm like, Ooh, you can't say that. You can't make that joke. Yeah. Uh, are you, do you yeah, worry I about have... that kind of stuff now? Or are you like, eh, that's, I haven't, I haven't showed it to my kids yet. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that would be one I would want to show to my kids. But you see this, this dude makes these stone age what? action figures. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. It's so cool. That's so amazing. Yeah. Just, yeah. Does that movie ha- kind of has like a cult following, right? Yeah, I've I've met these kids that are you know kids whatever they're they're adults but younger than me that that you know they have like a, a like a Lebowski sort of fetish with the movie huh. and uh, there's there's a uh, there's a little community of them they have little get-togethers where they'll do you know Lebowski type shit and they have these uh, trophies that they make out of you know props from the movie and this sort of thing like the action figure it's it's 
amazing to run into people like this on the internet that are, uh, I, I just ordered a t-shirt that in the movie, they drink this peppermint schnapps. Yeah. So yeah. The big jug the of it. Off the, yeah. They took the label off the schnapps and they're selling t-shirts of it on uh red bubble or someplace like that. It's wow. uh, hilarious. That's crazy. And then another one that, um, you know, kind of, I don't know, you said you're, I don't know if you'd call it a cult following, but there's definitely people that grew up with the movie airheads. I love that movie. Yeah as a kid and it's cool because you got and you got to be on the set with farley and sandler uh and harold ramus and ernie uh, hudson two of the ghostbusters so tell me about that is there do you have any farley stories because that would must have been amazing like i i would think that anything he did would would stand out yeah uh it, there was fun stuff with him at the at the table reading uh but the, the one it's sort of a lesson i learned about you know you never especially as the writer, you just want to keep your mouth shut and observe. And on that movie, it was my first studio movie. And the director was very, very cool about letting me have access to everything. And what I realized, nobody had to tell me this, but you just don't, don't undermine the director. He's giving you this access just, you know, so Farley comes up to me because he'd been arguing with the director about his wardrobe and he wanted to have his belt, you know, up here by his belly button and the director wanted it down low so you could see more of his stomach and he's more funny that way. Either case, Farley, you know, argued to a standstill with Lehman, the director, and he came to me and goes, listen, what do you think? Where should my belt be? Should it be up here or down here? And I could tell which way the director wanted me to say. So I agreed with the director and Farley was bummed out, but walked away and wound up having his, uh, his belt that way. But he was cute because you know, he's big Chris Farley and he was just worried that he didn't want to look silly. Aww. You know, he's just a huge cuddly kitty teddy bear of a guy, <laughs> even though he's so yeah. intimidating and larger than life. And you think he wouldn't have any, uh, uh, self-esteem issues because yeah. he's with, uh, with, uh, Patrick Swayze doing the, the, the right? thing. Yeah. He's got yeah. his shirt off in that one. What the hell? Right. Uh, so that was, that was adorable. I, that, that really, yeah. that really makes you kind of love the guy. Yeah, totally. No, that's really, that's interesting. I, yeah. It, it's interesting hearing a lot of these big stars have such insecurities. I had a uh, Corinne Olympia. She was like, well, she's one of the, I, don't, I wasn't a fan of the bachelor really. I didn't watch it, but apparently she's one of the most famous people from the bachelor. And I had her on and she's ta- telling me how she doesn't think she has enough, enough uh, Instagram followers. And I'm like, you have like three quarters of a million followers. And she's like, I know, but I, I lost some the other day. And I, it's like, what? Like, it's just fascinating to see these like kinds of, in- kinds of insecurities. So, yeah. ah, interesting. I, I, I never saw that from Sandler. He, he may have those insecurities, but he was able from, you know, the first shot to the last shot every day on the set is making everyone laugh in between takes and at lunch. And just, he's always fucking around. He's always on. He always seems to be having a fantastic time. Uh, and I never saw any other side of him. Does he do the voices just when he's like hanging out? Does he do like the, Yeah, he just, yeah, he does goofy, stupid shit and makes fun of the cameraman or whoever. And he gets to know everybody and busts their balls. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a, it was a riot. I, I assume he's probably still like that. Cause he seems like he's yeah. very much the same guy and he works with so many of the same people over and over. He seems genuinely happy. Cause yeah, he just, he gets to make movies with his friends. I mean, that sounds like heaven to most people. So it's, it's interesting to hear you say though, that you're not really allowed to have any sort of creative input after you've written the script, like your job is done. I thought maybe you would be like, well, this scene's more about this. Like he doesn't, 
Does he never want to ask you for your opinion other than the time Farley asked? No, uh, <clears throat> it's not that. It's that if you're going to have those kind of creative discussions, you have it in private with the director. Okay. Um, directors often want to hear what you have to say, and it is collaborative, but you don't say it in front of an actor or the cameraman or whatever, because then suddenly the, the actor gets it into his head like, well, the guy, when he wrote it, he had he thought my... You know, I should say it this way, so I should do it that way. And no, that's not the way it goes. It's it's up to the director. So just play it cool like that and, and don't undercut the guy. Does it ever piss you off, though, when you're like, oh, they're butchering the scene or they, they changed this. Or they took out my funny line or. Very rarely. Normally, everyone that I've worked with has been amazing. Sometimes they'll hire a guy who's a, a comedian to do one of your roles and they'll sort of wing it with your dialogue hmm. and they may wing it and make it 20 times funnier, but it's still annoying because you're like, well, come on, man. I, <laughs> I wrote the fucking thing. Do yeah. it, do it the way I wrote it, but whatever. Ultimately when it's at the end of the day, you look at it again and you go, okay, that was pretty funny. I haven't had a disastrous kind of experience where I want to disown the movie because somebody took such a fucking left turn with it. Uh, fortunately, you know. that's good. That's yeah. good. So yeah. So then you, you get this movie airheads and I thought that was interesting that you, you were just driving the shitty car, but instead of buying like a Ferrari or something, you just bought a Saturn. You didn't, you didn't want to splurge cause you thought, Hey, this could go away at any time, but, um, you, your career kept moving and you did the, tell me about the jerky boys. Cause I, I loved the jerky boys when I was a kid. I had, uh, oh, yeah. I think the first two or three CDs and then that's kind of when they, they capitalized on it and they made that movie and you initially turned it down because you're like, how the hell are you going to write a screenplay for prank calls? And then you ended up writing the whole thing in a week. Yeah, my my friend Jim, who directed Stone Age, he took the job of uh, writing and directing Jerky Boys. And that was after I had said, you know, no, I'm busy on this other thing and I don't have a single idea on how to do this. Um, but Jim did have an idea. Unfortunately, they they didn't give him any time to write. He had to start shooting let's say February 15th, and it was Christmas time. There's no script, but he has a start date because it has to be in theaters by August because they figure, well, this Jerky Boys thing is a fad. Let's get it into theaters for mm. the college kids by, by September. And so I wound up uh, writing it with him, and that meant me you know, going to New York, uh, hanging out with, uh, with uh, Johnny Brennan and Kamal, the Jerky Boys, and sort of uh, culling from all of their albums the bits that we liked and turning them into, you know, movie scenes and, and uh, trying to cobble together a plot based on taking their stuff as, uh, as canon and trying to figure out how you weave in a character like Brett Weir or, or, you know, any of these other guys, Saul or whatever. Um, and it was a real challenge and it, it, it came out so much better than, than anybody had a right to expect. Uh, yeah. Ultimately, I think, the kind of movie that Jerky Boys fans would have wanted to see would have been something more like like a Crank Yankers or a or a Jackass kind of movie with these guys doing some mm. pranks and shit. Um, because you know they're they're Johnny's obviously brilliant because he's on Family Guy and and everything else right. doing voices. But at the time, it was their first shot, and you know the movie wasn't widely seen. But it came out a lot better than than it had a right to. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I loved it when I was a kid. I love the soundtrack too. It was a good soundtrack. Oh, yeah. 
Um, and then, so then, yeah, anyways, then you eventually, you do make this Glory Days, which had a phenomenal cast. Uh, ben Affleck, Sim Rockwell, Matthew McConaughey, Brendan Fraser, Matt Damon makes a cameo. And so you got to direct it. So tell me, what did you learn from that? Do you feel like, are you proud of that? Do you feel like you would have done it differently or? Actually, you know, it's weird because you take some time. Initially, you didn't get a theatrical release. So we did film festivals. We had a great time. Um, the theatrical lease th- release thing didn't work out. We got it into, you know, some art house theaters in New York City for a weekend or two. And that was it. Um, so the perception for me was like, well, shit, I spent a year and a half on that. Uh it didn't see the light of day. So I, I fucked up. So mm. I didn't direct. I, I just wanted to concentrate on writing. So 20 years go by, I catch up with the movie on, it was on Netflix a couple of years ago and I watch it and I go, well, shit, I really do like that. You know, I was, my opinion was tainted because it wasn't a success. Yeah. And so I thought, well, and this must, it must suck. And then I go back and look at it and I go, no, fuck. I'm, I really like you know, it's me at 28 years old writing and directing this movie. Uh, and it, it, it came out exactly the way I had envisioned it for better or worse. You know, when you're, you're 28 and responsible for that kind of a, a production, it's not, it's not easy, but I had fantastic, you know, friends around me and, and, uh, I don't know, it does make you smile when you look back at something you did in your twenties, doesn't it? Like some yeah. song you recorded or, you know, you're well, most of my twenties was a uh, regretful, but yeah, like for you, you did some cool shit. The, tell me about this. You did, you had uh, some uncredited work on Billy Madison. I know this movie front to back. So which jokes were yours? Um, <clears throat> this one, I did the, the bathtub. The That's you. Yeah. That no was way. Me. Um, I brought back, I got another prop over there. I brought back the, uh, penguin. The penguin was only in the opening scene, but I brought him back into Veronica Vaughn's apartment. When, later yeah. When he's got the drink and he's waving at yeah, Billy yeah. Madison. Oh, that is classic. I did the O'Doyle's. O'Doyle rules. The, yeah. The, uh, those are my, the, the O'Doyle rules line was Sandler and Hurley, but I came up with the O'Doyle's because, we need an antagonist, you know, for while he's going through school. And so, oh, so you created the characters. Yeah. A bunch of red haired brothers that go up in age so that he can always be fighting with the same family oh. to give it a little, you know. And then I came up with the the, the ending of the movie, the, the academic decathlon. That was something I added. Oh, wow. That's a lot. You didn't get a credit for that? No. I mean, because what I did was I, I did mostly the idea stuff. I said, here's an academic decathlon. And I, I wrote out a version of it and they just wrote their own version of it. But because structurally, I mean, I was there for the structural stuff. We need these bullies that are going to be there for the whole movie. Okay. O'Doyle rules. We need the, I wanted the, the, you know, penguin to come back. So you get a, it doesn't feel so uh, hmm. random. It's like a setup and a payoff now. And then you needed some kind of climax rather than just a graduation from high school, make it this academic decathlon with this guy. But then Sandler and Hurley, he wrote all of the scenes within that. Okay. Um, uh, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't do enough to, to get credit. That's not the way the writer's guild works. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the stuff I did, uh, that one is another one. It's just like, it's on people's radar 25 years later. And it's, it's amazing that. People, oh Yeah. 
I love that movie. That's cool. You wrote some cool jokes. So you, you get paid for that then? Or what What are they, how do they, how does that work? Yeah, sure. They, they, you know, it was after Airheads. And so they, they had a script that was, uh, Sandler and Hurley, he had not formatted it right. So it was 140 pages long when I took oh. a look at it, when I fixed it. Uh, and so I had to take out like 25 pages of, of Billy Madison and give it some kind of structure. Cause it was kind of, all over the place. Um, so that was the deal from the beginning that I was just going to come in and do an edit pass and do a structural thing and give them these building blocks like the, uh, the decathlon to build upon. And then they were going to rewrite every, everything that I wrote. And, and that's what, what happened. I, I did it knowing I wasn't going to be getting credit on it. Mm. Okay. Still, that's cool though. Yeah. That's, those are some great jokes. That's great stuff. And then, and then Triple X, that is that kind of your biggest like payday? Because that was a big movie that made a lot of money. Yeah, that one was a, a, a pitch I came up with after Airheads and Jerky Boys and Billy Madison. I wanted to do you know branch out from comedy, so I did my Glory Days thing, which is sort of my attempt at being like a Barry Levinson diner kind of movie, sort of like a American Graffiti true life story that's funny, but it's still got some emotion to it or whatever. Right. So then I wanted to do something in the action area. So I came up with this triple X idea and it also came together in a super fast way. You know, we got Vin Diesel right as the trailer was coming out for the first fast and the furious, oh. we got him to sign up for this one with the same director from fast and the furious. Um, and it just, it came together so fast. It, it was a huge, you know, it made a quarter billion dollars worldwide. It was phenomenal. And then for some reason, they totally fucked up the sequel and Vin Diesel <laughs> didn't wind up doing it. And they brought in Ice Cube and mm. the whole thing went into the ground until, you know, 17 years later when Vin came back for Triple X three return of Xander Cage. Yeah. Didn't you write some of the script and then they were like mad at you or something. So then they went someone else's script. They were having two guys write a script and they were going to pick the better one and they liked the other guys better for whatever reason. Correct. Yeah. Uh, for the sequel. Yes. Sequel. It was me and another guy working simultaneously without knowing that we were both writing the movie. So there was two versions of triple X written. They went with the other one. Vin dropped out. Uh, and they went ahead and did it with uh, with Ice Cube. And I think that they thought that it was a, a strong enough concept that every movie you could do a new guy. You know what I mean? Mm. Huh. Ice Cube can be it one time and then this guy will be it. But that's not a way to build a, a, a franchise. But it, you got to remember, this is also at the time when Vin Diesel had dropped out of the Fast and Furious movies. That's right. And those kept going on without him until he came back for number three or four mm -hmm. or whatever it was. Um, so, you know, they thought on the strength of the title alone, they might be able to pull it off, but they, they weren't able to. But it's interesting if you, you know, that is the biggest thing that I've written commercially, commercial hit, but I actually had sat down and said, what's the fucking biggest movie idea I can have? Because I hate when you go see a movie and you go, that is so obvious. Why didn't I think of that? It's a great idea. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, like uh, something like, uh, uh, Oh, what's it called? Men in black. Yeah. It's genius. How fucking good. Are those guys are great. Uh, the Bill and Ted movies. I love How those. Great. Is that these big concepts that work out and you're like, shit, Somebody came up with that idea before I did. So I wound up having this idea for an X Games version of James Bond with a, you know, because in the, in the, 
I think it was Mission Impossible 2 on the soundtrack. They had Limp Biscuit. Yeah. And I'm like, Limp Biscuit doesn't fit with, you know, Tom Cruise. If you're going to use that kind of music, it's got to be a character that's more like an X Games guy. And so yeah. that, that, I set out to create a blockbuster franchise and it actually worked out, which is phenomenal. <laughs> you know, it's not, yeah. it's not that easy to do. And, and there, you know, over the years, there's been talk of, uh, you know, the rights issue is, is tough. It's, we're not quite clear on the rights, but I've written a version of triple X three. They're already on four now. Uh, hopefully that's going to get made. I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy, but nothing ever dies in Hollywood. As and yeah, you still get paid for those sequels because you created the characters, right? You get some sort of yeah. royalty yeah. or something. Okay. Yeah. On that, because it was a pitch that I had invented this character, they had to, you know, uh, give me characters created by and all future ones. And I get paid mm. like Bob Kane does on Batman except he's got Batman. And I yeah, guess, that's still, yeah. So, but so yes, yeah, so you talk about, you know, that it was amazing that it worked out, but there's a lot that don't work out. And you actually wrote a bunch of movies um, that you got paid for, but that didn't get made. One of them was this, uh, what was it? The Wolfenstein video game. You worked on that script sure. for a year and it never came out. Most of the things you work on don't get made. It's a very, your, your huh. batting average is, yeah. If you're, if you're hitting 300, you're doing great. I've got, okay. I don't know, hmm. seven or eight, movies made and i've written over 46 47 something like that so my bad is pretty good but you'll spend years working on you know i wrote uh, a, a version of the marvel uh iron fist character i wrote a feature version of that that didn't work and mm. i wrote a kung fu remake of the kung fu uh tv show as a feature and that didn't wind up working out after two years and you got paid and, for both those though yeah, you get paid. You get paid more if they get made. But okay. I've been able to make a nice living. I mean, most people in features make their living off movies that never get made because, you know, it's a very small percentage that make it into the theaters. But it's not your fault that it doesn't pan out. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Like, this actor falls out. We can't get a director. There's a rights issue and we're losing the option. Uh, you know, there's 10 million things that can go wrong uh and they always do and when it, when it you know uh, the dirt which we'll get to in a minute yeah took, uh 17 years to get made yeah so that's a cool you know, story but yeah so these ones that don't get made um how does that work do they they pay you up front they option they say hey we, we they hire you to write this story or do you ever just go i've got this idea like with triple x it was that just you just started the whole thing and started the idea and then do you go to the studio and pitch it and then they say okay and then you, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, th I don't know if that really works anymore because everything mm. is uh, about IP now, you know, um, what do you mean? Intellectual IP property. intellectual okay. property. So like, for instance, I'm just reading an article. It's it's here's the headline. Uh, let me find it here. It's about Eva Longoria's production company is making a movie and the title is, hold on. <laughs> Eva Longoria Cheetos movie, Flamin' Hot. Oh, that's, that's an interesting Derek. story. The janitor uh, exactly. at the company uh, just at, like went to the the CEO and was like, Hey, I got this idea for uh, hot Cheetos. And like, we love it. You're, you're, you know, and they, now he's like a millionaire. <laughs> he was the yeah, janitor. Exactly. But you, I just read the headline before I heard that story. And I was like, 
okay, it's the Flaming Hot Cheetos movie. You know, every it's a, there. There was talk for a while of of opening up the General Mills universe with Snap, Crackle, and Pop, and Toucan Sam, and Tony the Tiger. You know, let's build a franchise around those guys. Uh, everything is is sort of based on something that you know. You know, it's going to be Three's Company, the movie. You're gonna, you know, within our lifetime, we're going to see a live action Simpsons movie. A live Probably. action family guy movie, you know, it's a Broadway play based on whatever the hell. So uh, uh, it's kind of hard to go in and say, hey, I have an original spy movie I want to pitch because there's like, well, we got it makes makes them feel better to know that it's based on an article or, or what have you. It's too safe, though, don't you see? See, and that's what I liked about um, I just watched this other movie you made too, the the 2006 documentary Punk Like Me. This is yeah. so cool. You. Yeah, and I don't want to give too much of it away because I want people to check it out. Um, but you created this like punk mariachi band and you convinced them to put you on the warp tour and you were in a rock band. You're touring on the warp tour. This is this is a really cool thing. And you you learned all this music in just a couple of days and and you learned what else did you learn from this? You it sounded like you learned that touring was not as glamorous as it looked. Like it's living the rock star life is not really all it's cracked up to be. Yeah, no, it, like the, the, there's a saying about the, the most exciting day of my life was my first day on a movie set. And the, the most boring day of my life was my second day on a movie set. <laughs> you know, really? It seems like, yeah, that's the, you know, it seems like it'd be awesome to work on Indiana Jones, but then you're on the set watching this truck roll by 37 times and you're like, fucking hell, this is awful. Um, and that's what, mm. what turns out touring is. You really get... Uh, uh, we had a half hour on stage. And if you fuck up that half hour, you're miserable until the next time you can play, you know, I would do it again in a heartbeat, but by the end of the tour, it was like, you know, they, they call it what do they call it? Uh, uh, road burn. Mm. You know, you're just like, I'm sick of eating this garbage. I'm sick of waking up in a town and not being able to shower. I don't know where I am. I don't know what time it is or what time we go you know, it gets to be a thing. And we were on the road just long enough for, for that to, to happen, which was nice because it destroys the fantasy and you go, okay, like, you know, it would be cool to be a stand-up comedian, right? Mm-hmm. But you're going to have to put in all these years staying at a motel six by yourself, traveling around, driving from town to town to get good at it. And like that, it, yeah, it'd be great to jump in at the level of a Bill Burr, but all of those years driving yeah. around with your oh, fucking nightmare. So that was, that was what I learned. It's, it's, it's great to get a taste of it, to know, okay. And even if I did have the talent to make it, it's not, I'm not cut out for that shit. It's a special breed of people that can, you know, do that 50 years in. Well, that must be why so many of them do drugs and stuff. Cause like, what do you do? You, you play a show for 30 minutes. What do you do the rest of the time? Do you go watch the other bands? Do you hang out on the bus? What do you do? we, We did, but, but if you do this every summer, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be brutal. Uh, I know, you know, it's different for different kind of bands, but like uh, you had uh, the LA Guns guy, the metal bands seem to go on the road for 200 shows a year. Whereas these other bands like No Effects nowadays, or, or even uh, other bands I've heard interviews with, they'll do two weeks at a time and then come home for a couple of weeks and then do two weeks. It's not going to be setting off on this major arena thing i guess if you're playing arenas you have to do them all in a row because you got all that equipment and and yeah shit that you have to haul around yeah but um the, the whole reason that movie came about was i was frustrated that it was taking the dirt so long to get made 
you know, mm-hmm. and I was in the, the rock and roll world and I was like, well, fuck it. Those, let me just try this thing and see if I can make it work and see, you know, uh, maybe that'll help me work more on the script for the dirt. You know, I'll get some more insight into what it's like, you know, being on the road. That's what I told my wife that it would be, that it would be research. Research. You know? I love that. Yeah. yeah. Very important. So, yeah, she had, and you had a couple other projects that didn't work out, but the, I'm curious about them anyways. What was the project you had in 2009 with the Russo brothers? Because those guys, uh, are they do the Avenger movies and they get millions per picture. But back in 2009, no one knew who they were. And so you guys couldn't get this made. What were you trying to make? What was the movie f- that you had with them? Uh, it's based on a, a best-selling nonfiction book called The Ballad of the Whiskey Robber. Mm. Uh, by uh, uh, I don't want to fuck up his name, but I don't have the book in front of me. Anyway, um, uh, Battle of the Whiskey Robber is about the most prolific bank robber in Eastern European history. Hmm. And he was a, a professional hockey goalie uh, from Transylvania. And he was literally the worst professional hockey player in the history of the world. He, he as a, as a keeper, he lost one game, 28, nothing. He gave up 28 goals in, in one match. Wow. Uh, and yet he was a professional, but he, to supplement his income, he would rob banks, but he was so nervous about it. He would have to get drunk first. So that's why he's the huh. whiskey robber. He only robs banks drunk. He robbed something like 28, 29 banks, finally got caught, put into the world's or the, the biggest, oldest prison in, in Budapest where no one has ever escaped he escaped from it. Instead of fleeing the country, he kept robbing banks just to <laughs> rub it in their faces until the f- he eventually got caught again. But wow. he was, he's this brilliant um, uh, sort of Robin Hood figure for, for the Czech Republic right at the time, not Czech Republic, Hungary, right at the time that communism is falling and, uh, and uh, democracy is coming in because it turns out they got screwed when that happened, that all of the the big time communist uh, leaders just snatched up all the opportunities that were supposed to be democratically distributed to everybody. They took the utilities mm. and the land and all the businesses and the same people stayed in power and none of it trickled down to, to the little man on the street. Wow. So well, that sounds perfect. like a fascinating movie. So what they, is it now? I think I still saw that on IMDB, like it might be made. Is that, is there a possibility that it might actually get made now? I doubt it because at the time Johnny Depp was possibly going to play, uh, we were working with his company, me and okay. the Russo brothers. So if it wasn't going to work with Johnny Depp back then, um, it's probably not going to work now because what happens is uh, they have to spend a lot of money on it. They spent a lot of money to, to secure the book, to pay me to write it, to pay the Russo brothers to work on it for two years, whatever we worked mm. on it for. And so making it now, you not only have to pay for the movie, but you have to pay back all of those costs that the oh. other people incurred. Okay. Interesting. So it makes it probably too expensive to make, you know, cause it should be made. It's a smaller movie. It should be yeah. made for 20, 30 million at most. And uh, it's, it's, I don't know, the, 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 the bean counters figure it out and it kind of, it kind of sucks because it, it, when we wrote it, it was at a time when people wouldn't accept, you know, a Western actor putting on an accent or whatever. Yeah. Then you get like uh, Grand Budapest Hotel and Wes Anderson says, well, fuck it. They're not going to do weird, funny accents. They're just going to talk however they talk. Hmm. Harvey Keitel is going to talk this way. And, you know, so 
I think you could do it now and you could put Adam driver as the Transylvanian hockey goalie. He would be fucking perfect. Cause yeah. Like from the Carpathians. Okay. Um, so it, I don't know. It's a great, That'd be fun. Book is phenomenal. Maybe I should just read the book at least. But so in 2015, you get this message from David Fincher and it says, how would you like to work on a TV show and, uh, and have no one tell you what to do. And you thought and this David Fincher, director of fight club, amazing director, one of my favorites. And you thought he sent the message to the wrong person. So you responded and said, I don't know if you know who this is, but I'm the guy who wrote the dirt and maybe you contacted the wrong person, but he didn't. He yeah. was actually wanted to make this TV show with you. It was called a uh, video sin crazy. It was a comedy series based on his experience in the music video world. And um, it sounded really interesting. Like it followed around a movie production assistant that he stressed into the chaos of, of the dawn of the music video era in the eighties. That sounds fascinating. What happened with this one? Um, it was uh, the movie. Uh, the show was video syncrasy. Oh, video uh, syncrasy. Sorry. I said it wrong. It looks like yeah. video sin crazy. That's but. the way they put it on online, but it, that's not the title of the thing. Okay. Um, the, the reason why David had contacted me was because he was the original, he was the first director on the dirt. It was supposed to right. be made with him in 2004. That fell apart through no reason of, you know, just the movie gods blew it up. Um, and then he kept my email for 10 years later when he wrote to me out of the blue about this TV show he wanted to do uh, about uh, a small production company making music videos in 1983, right at the dawn of MTV and when things are starting to take off. And all of these people started dumping money into music videos, thinking that they were going to be the next big thing. And that's the situation that Fincher found himself in when he showed up in town uh, and had some talent uh, that they were just, you know, throwing money at these guys like him and Michael Bay and and uh, Tony Scott and uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Spike Jones, all these guys, mm. you know, Fincher would do stuff with the Rolling Stones and Madonna and and uh, I mean, just ridiculous, big, big ass names. And they as a reward, here's a Porsche or a whatever. Just mm. awesome stories. From yeah. The world. Tales of Excess, but we did it for, uh, we wrote the the whole season for HBO and it was queued up to be his next show after Utopia. There's a BBC show Utopia that they remade. It just came out on Amazon without Fincher. Okay. But they were redoing it at HBO. They had the scripts written. It's the same scripts they wound up using, I think, at Amazon. I don't know exactly, but it's the same writer. Um, anyway, that was going to be a very expensive show that uh, HBO pulled the plug on. And when that happened, when that thing blew up, that blew up my show. And Fincher mm. wound up leaving HBO and starting a relationship, starting a uh, relationship again with Netflix, where he was before with House of uh, Cards. Uh, and the thing, you know, is, is stuck in, in movie jail. Mm. The, the scripts are owned by HBO. Uh, it's never going to get made or see the light of day, but it was an amazing experience that I worked on for several years. And like, you know, all right. So you, he's one of your favorite guys. Oh yeah, dude. He's brilliant. Isn't he brilliant? I mean, what does he like working with? He's gotta be, he's like film school. You know, you learn, he, he, do you know what an optical printer is for special effects where you can superimpose one image on the other? No. Well, he built his own optical printer. It's, it's the, the compositing thing that they use for 
for blue screen back okay. in the old days of ILM. So he built one in high school from on his own in the garage, a working <laughs> optical printer, and then oh started God. working at ILM at the age, you know, while well, he's still a teenager. So he worked uh, on the end of uh, Empire and then through uh, Return of the Jedi. So he was a, a, a sort of on this savant course of being a, uh, a special effects guy, but then used those special effects skills to make his earliest videos. Like if you look on YouTube, you can find these Fincher directed videos of Rick Springfield, where Rick Springfield is a space pirate in this weird spaceship <laughs> thing. And oh. you go, holy shit, how did they make that for nothing? And it's David Fincher using his special effects expertise to turn, you know, uh, Rick Springfield into this badass space pirate guy and the effects still hold up. And you're like, well, shit, this is early 80s, you know, smoke and mirrors and it looks wow. awesome. So that was that was the world of the show. It was it was very, very funny. We had a great cast. We, we actually shot a pilot uh, that David directed. But but here's the, the way Hollywood works. And this is annoying that the, for the first year and a half that I worked on it, it was practically for no money. You know, I was mm. working for HBO with David Fincher, but because of the way the deal is structured, I wound up for the first 18 months, I think I got paid 8,000 bucks and it's nearly a full-time job. Right. Right. Yeah. I have to work on other shit to, you know, pay my rent. But yes, for the privilege of working <laughs> for HBO and with David, David Fincher on a TV show, about the music videos of the eighties, which is a slam dunk. The first year and a half, I get like eight grand uh, until it finally clicks in and we start, you know, shooting something and then you, you get paid a decent wage, but it's fucking tough, you know, to have something like that blow up after you worked on it practically for free for so long. Uh, it really, it really sucks, especially since nobody is ever going to know that I did it unless they listen to this, this podcast. Yeah, you know? no, it sounds fascinating just working with him. Cause so yeah, let's talk about the dirt. Cause that's how you originally met him that you guys were, were you know, you're making this uh, version of the dirt and I, I'm kind of curious about your version. Cause originally you wanted to have it as an NC 17, which I love, but MTV wimped out and, um, and then they got Larry Charles, who was the director of Borat and um, then they didn't like him. And then you finally left the project in 2008. And then you got the call, like it must have been what, like uh, 10 years later that they're finally going to make it. And so what happened is, uh, if I understand this right, another writer was brought in um, and your 2004 script was altered. So we got the book and that's the original book that you worked off and you wrote a script. And then this other, I think it was a, a was it a woman that came in and then she. Yeah, Amanda. She, yeah. yeah. So Amanda, she, she, she came, she made the version more made the characters likable. Whereas, you know, the Netflix version tried to, you know, redeem the characters. You kind of wanted it to be like, no, these guys are assholes. And this is how, it, how this is how it was. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is a tough sell because you'll, you know, we always, I always thought of it as like raging bull or even the Joker. I mean, the Joker proved it can work. The guy's a psychotic maniac. And at the end you're like, shit, that's <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm with the Joker. Uh, and, yeah, you find out that he had a shitty childhood and all that, but that doesn't that doesn't excuse mass murder. So in either case, the the vision that I had for the dirt was, you know, if you read the book, they aren't making any apologies for anything. So I took that to heart and and just did it that way, which ultimately nobody wanted to make, whether it was with Fincher or with Larry Charles mm. or whatever. 
Um, so they had to make some kind of adjustment to get the movie made. And so after I left, they had woven in a much more, uh, uh, relatable version of the characters into the crazy story and wound up with the, the Netflix movie. So it's about 50% mine. 50% of the the scenes are literally from the 2004 draft and the rest are new sort of combined. Um, And it gives the movie, you know, the heart and the sympathy for the characters, uh, which works um, and is more palatable to most people. But that's one where I'm always going to be curious. What happens, what would have happened if you did the, the nasty NC-17, fuck you, I don't care what you think of me version, which I, you know, I think Fight Club is pretty much that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I've read the book a couple times. It's been a while, but I did rewatch the movie today. And so I got to ask you about this. So the end uh, where they, they go to the bar and they find Vince Neil like, Vince, we miss you. We love you. I was like, that's total bullshit. Because in the book, it's like, no, they're in like these... I think it was a hotel conference room and there's tons of lawyers on each side and they're, they're saying Vince Neil looks like shit and like, he's not cool. And like, they're talking all the shit to each other. And it was kind of like, they reluctantly got back together because they're like, look, we need to do this to like make money. It wasn't like they, they never, I don't think that I never heard anything about apologies or any of that stuff. So that part seems like that was not your part of the script. I'm guessing. Yeah. Well, I think the reality with most bands that have been together for a long time is that they don't, like each other or they don't hang out with each other in either case, like Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey from the who they still record albums, but they'll do it on separate continents without ever talking to each other. In other words, they both have a producer they're working with and Townsend will talk to his producer who will talk to the other producer who will translate those notes to Daltrey. And that's how they record an album. Now Uh, some of the, the bands on the warp tour, some of the big bands, they'll have a separate bus for a couple of guys and their deal will be, I don't want to see you until we walk on stage. I'm going to come in from the left. You're going to come in for the right. I don't want to fucking see you. Uh, and who knows what the story is? Maybe it's, you know, like with Motley Crue, uh, uh, Nikki Six uh, slept with Tommy's girlfriend. You know, maybe somebody sleeps with somebody's wife or maybe they're just, the personalities are fucked up or there's money issues or creative issues. And they're just like, I have to stay together because this is my bread and butter. I'm stuck with these guys I was friends with from the age of 18 to now. That's the Motley Crue story. They've known each other since high school. Mm -hmm. How many of your high school buddies could you be together with constantly for 50, 60 years? That's a good point. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Yeah. But that's my my best friend group. A couple, right. People that evolve from high school. And you're like, fuck, if I'm stuck with that asshole for, (laughs) you know, to make my living. And they tried tried Motley Crue without Vince Neil and they tried it without Tommy. And, uh, you know, Nicky tried other projects on his own and none of them work like those four guys together Yeah, for them. They're stuck with each other. It's kind of like, uh, I was just reading about guns and roses yesterday and, and they opened up for rolling stone and they said it was like, this was in like 89 or 90. And I think, uh, you know, they all had their each lo- their own managers and lawyers and buses and everything. And guns and roses were saying, Oh, that's, that's never going to happen to us. We'll never get like that. And then it was like a year later. That's how it was for them. So. I mean, I think that it's like you say, I think that's just the story of a lot of bands. You're right. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate, but it's, you know, it's human nature, especially when you throw fame and and money into it, it's gotta be, it's gotta be incredibly hard. Yeah. Don't forget as far as I remember. Yeah. uh, Vince Neil was dating Pamela Anderson before she married Tommy Lee. 
That's true. If they, if they, I don't know if they have qualms about that sort of thing. Maybe you don't when you're on the road having foursomes all the time. <laughs> But I, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's Maybe interesting. So what did you find out? Because you did. I love this. You're like, you're like, you know what? I need to do some research for this movie. So I need to go hang out with uh, Nikki and Tommy. And uh, did you hang out with uh, Mick and Vince at all, too? No, Mick was uh, a little bit ill at the time. He mm. had to, before they got back together and went on the road, they had to, you know, it's not in the book because it happened after the book, but in the movie, he has to go get a hip replacement surgery because his health is declining. And it was sort of in that era that I was uh, doing that. And here's the problem with the, the, in 2002, I got hired to write the dirt script immediately after I get hired, the band breaks up, starts suing each other. And I'm forbidden from working on the script because now they don't want to make the movie anymore. Mm. It takes two years for them to finally reconcile and I'm okay to begin work on the script again. Okay. So because that was the circumstance, I never got to hang out with Vince because he was the pissed off guy that wanted nothing to do with the movie. So the only time I talked to him was on the phone one time where he yelled at me and said he was going to sue me if I was going to try to, you know, write this movie because it was at the time when they were having this, this breakup. And since that was my introduction to him, I never went to go and hang out with him afterwards because <laughs> he didn't quite like me. Yeah, okay, that's fair. All right. So what do you and what was it? I heard you tell the story about uh, you got to do Jaeger shots with Tommy Lee. So that sure, sounds kind of yeah. cool. And then did, what do you have any memories of uh, hanging out with Nikki Six? God, you know, he's one of my childhood idols and he's the create creative force behind the band. He's one of the the guys I just looked up with because again he's not from LA he was a, a street kid he's from Seattle he's from my hometown yeah and that was not a hotbed of rock and roll at, at then the no so he moved down here and he made it on his own so just to be able to ask all the questions you wanted to ask about your favorite songs like where did you come up with how did you you know what was it like recording and da, 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 da. anything that you can think of just to hang out with the person and you know, I, I joke that it's that it's research and that that's fake, but it's not because you're getting to know the their voice, how they talk mm-hmm. when you ask them a question, how they, you know, and mm. you put all that into the a good into point. the script, and that's why when it comes time to make the movie, Machine Gun Kelly is hanging out with Tommy Lee for research, and they're going out to bars and you know, getting the vibe. Of, sounds uh, amazing. Of like to be that guy. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. So why do you think this movie is so popular? Like, why do we love Motley Crue? Because they are, like you said, they're such assholes. They fuck other people's wives. Vince kill, kills a guy. They trash people's stuff. And, and it kind of reminds me of like mobster movies. Like these are mobsters are terrible people. They're criminals and they kill people. But I, I love mobster TV shows and movies. I love Sopranos. So how do you, is that a hard job making these people likable? I mean, I guess that's why maybe they, they hired the, the other person to, to change your script because maybe you, you didn't do that or did you, is your original script where you still kind of trying to make them somewhat likable? No, no, my, I would have been, I don't know. It, it sounds arrogant, but I, I did not care if this script people reading the, or seeing the movie, people will be so offended by these guys that it would destroy their career. I didn't care if that would be the end result. I wanted to do the, the book the way they did it. 
And the only reason that they wrote that book was because they were breaking up again. And they said, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to tell all the dirt on my bandmates. And they do. They, they hated each other at the yeah. time they wrote the book. That's why he confesses to fucking Tommy's uh, girlfriend. And that's why Vince says these three albums all suck because Nikki was a heroin addict and he couldn't write for shit. You wouldn't have that kind of truth if they thought they were going to be together. So they write the book in this time when they're willing to talk shit. That's what the movie's supposed to be. But then they get back together and they want to clean it up a little bit. And I don't want to blah, 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 offend and whatever. Let's protect our legacy or what have you. Uh, it's so much more fun when they <laughs> acknowledge that they hate each other and are fighting. That's when you get all of that really juicy stuff. And maybe that's why people connect with that, because that's real. Because we all have those people that we hate and that we, you know, we have feuds with. But yet, I mean, maybe it's like people that we love, like our brothers, but, you know, it's a love-hate kind of thing. And so, I mean, that stuff is real. And I think that's why it's a lot better than a lot of other biographies, too, because a lot of them oh, are yeah. very safe. And it's, you know, it's, and like, like you said, it's them talking shit about each other. It's not just one person's version of the story. They're all going back and forth. Yeah, correct. The, the, fast, the gangster thing is, a, I hadn't thought of that, but that's actually true. They are legitimate outlaws in the sense that they do literally break laws. They fuck people over and smash up shit and, and do all of these horrible things, including, you know, unfortunately, uh, Vince killing Razzle in a drunken car accident. Uh, and there's an authenticity to it. There's... Uh, uh, it's it's hard to look away. That's why they called when they did a box set. It was called Music to Crash Your Car To. It's like watching a car crash their whole fucking lives. Mm -hmm. The idea that they're still alive is crazy. It's like Keith Richards still being alive. It makes no sense. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's something about that. You're right. It's They aren't squeaky clean. They're the absolute opposite. You wouldn't want them to sit on your furniture because it'll make it sticky. <laughs> but they're still amazingly cool. Yeah. That's crazy. Would you be interested in um, going back to guns and Roses? I'm a huge guns and roses fan. Would you be interested in doing a pick on them? Cause I'd love to see your version of that. And let's, let's bring back David Fincher too. And I want the full <laughs> unedited version. Like, you know what I really want is like, I think I needed a mini series of that. The dirt. Was there a longer version of no, because it, it, since it was written so long ago, it was before this sort of golden age of TV when right, you can do yeah. 10 hours of the Motley Crue story. Um, at the time they were broken up and there was no thought that they could attract an audience. And then when they got back together, suddenly they're selling out Staples center and people are like, how, why is Motley Crue more popular now than they were in the nineties? Nobody knew that they could sell out world tours uh, and also, you know, nobody knew that you could do TV shows and stretch out a story. So that was never really thought of maybe in the, in the Netflix version, they were thinking about hmm. it, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but there was enough material that, yeah, you could do several seasons, uh, just drilling into their early years. Uh, yeah, it would be fascinating. And now they're doing somebody, they're doing a Pam and Tommy limited series. Oh, I didn't hear about that one. That sounds interesting. Yeah, it's about their sex tape. Okay. Uh, so I think it's like one of those, you know, uh, that OJ miniseries they did. Oh. I think it's that kind of thing about the sex tape and how it got sold and, you know, whatever. Yeah. I heard somebody, a uh, friend stole it out of a safe from their garage. So yeah. supposedly. 
I asked him about it, uh, Tommy. Oh, you did? That, wow. Yeah. I was at that house. It was the house that he uh, lived in with her and where the young boy uh, drowned in the pool at the birthday oh, party right. and all this yeah. horrible shit. But the, the safe was uh, sunk into the ground in the, in the basement, so or no, in the garage. It was in the garage. floor. Concrete poured into the floor of the garage. And somebody, while they were gone, came in with construction equipment, jackhammered it out, lifted it out with a crane. You know, it wasn't it wasn't just some random people breaking in and finding this thing. What were, did they know there was a sex tape in there or what did they think was in there? Uh, I assume they must have known. I don't know. Okay. I, know, I guess we'll find out when the show comes out. Yeah, I'm interested for that one. But, w- but would you do a Guns N' Roses one if they asked you to? I mean, that, that's got to be something that's in the works, right? You know, uh, I haven't heard about it. Uh, I heard about a Van Halen one. Okay. Uh, an unauthorized Van Halen one. There's, there's uh, oh shit, there's a Kiss one I just heard about. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's sort of my niche is, is rock and roll stuff. Or even like I wrote a, uh, a Sam Kinison movie. The yeah, I was going to ask you about that. And that one, uh, I've been waiting uh, 12, uh, 13 years now for, for it to get made. And it's still got some life in it. And it also went through multiple directors. Uh, Larry Charles was one. And uh, I, uh, the other guy, I forgot his name. Wasn't Howard Stern attached to do something with Produce It or something? That's right. It's based on the book, uh, Sam Kinison's brother's book, Bill Kinison's book. Um, and Howard was friends with Bill and was attached as the as the executive producer with David Permit, who's the guy I'm working with now. Mm. So Howard is no longer attached, but it's the same producer dating back to like 1995. So, so you think this one will now. get made though? <laughs> it's possible. Okay. I, you can't say for sure another Marvel movie is going to get made. Yeah. No certainty in this. Business. Okay. Well, so then I think we talked about Ballad of Whiskey Robber. What about these other things you have? Straight Edge and Go Fast. Are those still in the works? Those are... Uh, Straight Edge is a, is a spec script uh, that I'm finishing up now. Uh, you know, I get so busy writing stuff that doesn't get made. I very rarely get to work on spec scripts. So that's a, a spec script I started in 2011, and I'm finally getting to finish it now. It's been that long. And the other one, Go Fast, is an action movie about, you know, the drug running Go Fast boats that, that bring in cocaine from Colombia. Um, and uh, that one has been seven years now that I've been trying to get to the finish line and I'm just finishing that one up. Okay. Isn't there another, and then there's a a biopic you're doing about Don Simpson from uh, Simpson and Bruckheimer. Yes. Yes. That one, uh, just in the early stages, uh, again, who, who, who knows, who knows? Sometimes you get paid to write the outline and then it dies there. Sometimes you get the script and it dies there. Sometimes you get to cast and you get to, you know, the money's on, I had one die like two weeks before production. No, two of them. George Clooney was going to be in a version of the, the green Hornet that I wrote in 97. And it was November. We were supposed to start shooting in March Had a director lined up. It was Robert Rodriguez. So it was Robert Rodriguez and George Clooney teamed up again. Like from dust till dawn. Yeah. They had, they had come on board it when they were still shooting that one. Oh. So we're supposed to shoot in four months. I'm hanging out with George Clooney, having a great time. I just ran into him at a bar and told him I was the one who wrote the script. And so we hung out. That was on a 
Thursday. By Monday, the whole thing blew up because Steven Spielberg, this guy Steven Spielberg, decided to start a studio called uh, DreamWorks. Is that what it's called? I think so, yeah. Whatever it is. The one he did was Geffen and and whatever. So for their first movie, they wanted to do the Peacemaker or Peacekeeper. uh, And Stephen called up George and said, would you mind starring in this movie? It's going to be the first movie from my new movie studio, DreamWorks. And he said, yes, of course, I'm going to do that. And so he ditched our project, Mm. did that one with uh, Mimi Leader. And uh, uh, ours never, you know, recovered. Because now you got a director who only wanted to work with George, but now George is a superstar and he goes straight into the perfect storm or whatever the fuck he's going to go into. And everyone goes their separate ways and the whole thing is screwed. Is is the Green Horn, is that the one that ended up being made with Seth Rogen or am I thinking of Green Lantern? I think it was. You're right. It was, it was, it was the same. It was Michelle Gondry was the director that came on board after, uh, after Rodriguez left. So I worked with, uh, I met with him a couple of times, Gondry. Okay. Um, and then he wound up doing an entirely different version because my script was stuck at Universal. And when the project moved to Sony, the Universal script stayed behind and they started afresh for Seth Rogen. But Gondry came on board to still be the director. Okay. So, yeah. So you're hanging out with George Clooney in a bar. And you, I heard you say you don't ever fanboy out. You treat these big stars just like any regular asshole you'd meet in a bar. So, I mean, but isn't that kind of fun to fanboy out a little bit? No, I do. Okay. Then I get, I know I'm not cool. I don't live in LA. When I see movie stars, I'm like, Oh my God. I mean, I fanboy out with like, you know, I had the guys from warrant. I've had them on my show and I'm like, this is the guys from warrant. Like, I I think it's so fun. It's yes, it is. You just don't want to show it. But I'm trying to work with the guy. So if I meet, Nikki six for the first time. And I come in and I'm like, Oh my God, dude, this is the, Oh my Jesus. Then he's going to be like, well, why the fuck? Who is this guy? Some fanboy is going to be writing my thing. I need somebody who's, you know, more professional than, I don't know. I just feel like that kind of is a turnoff to somebody. They get their asses kissed all the time. And Mm. so you come in and go, listen, I'm just here to work. I could give a fuck who you are. Yeah, you did some great stuff. Great. Tell me about this. Tell me about that. Tell me about your failures. Tell me and play it that way, no matter. So are you internally fanboying though? Are you like, oh my God, it's Nikki Six, and then you're just playing yeah, it cool? Naturally. Yes. Okay. okay. Of course I want to meet these people. And and you know, but a, a guy told me a long, long time ago, uh, when I was working on Airheads, he was one of the uh advertising guys at Fox. And he said, I met Eddie Van Halen. And, you know, we were chit-chatting and Eddie said, hey, do you want to come by the studio? I'm mixing my new record. And he said, I, uh, this guy is telling me the story. He goes, I, and I knew exactly how to play. Yeah, this is how you got to play it with these guys. So I told him, yeah, maybe I'll come by. So I played it cool like that. And then I went <laughs> over, you know, a couple of days later, I went over. He had me in. We had a great time. But this guy with tons of experience at a studio said that's the way you deal with these celebrities and i took it to heart and and uh i've done it that way ever since that's smart that's good advice you know i try to i try to tone it down sometimes too i was like i was at a party this uh, last weekend and and mick brown with uh from Dawkins was there and uh he's playing this dice game and i'm just 
And I was playing the game and I was having fun and I didn't, I didn't even ask him for a picture. And I was proud of myself because I'm like, typically I'd be like, oh man, let's get a picture. But I was like, no, I, th- I think it's like not the right like time to, you know, so it was fun. But you hung out with Rob Zombie. That was like back in, I think I saw a picture of you in 95 before he made yeah. movies. Uh, is there any talk of collaborating with him now though, now that he's making movies? No. That would be cool. No, I just met him. I just met him at the premiere. You know, he did, uh, he was in Airheads. The band was in right, right. the concert scene. So I'd seen him when they shot that. And, but then I just, you know, accosted him at the after party, the, the rap party and uh, was drunk and took pictures with him. No, <laughs> nothing, nothing became of that. Uh, unfortunately, because he's, he, yeah, he turned out to be quite a, a movie talent. Yeah. He's no, he's great. Uh, it would be fun to just, it'd be interesting to hang out with him and uh, like, you know, I could see him like having a movie night with him and Tarantino and like Kevin Smith or something, just like the three of those guys and each of them like picking, you know, hey, I got to show you this movie, like, cause they probably, they know some of this cool underground shit that I've never heard of. I'm sure. Right. Well, getting back to how you treat these people, I, I went to this party and there was uh, session musicians there, M- musicians that that also play, you know, when Mariah Carey goes on tour, she needs a bass player. So you call this guy or whatever. And one of these guys was working with one of the surviving Beatles. And so I'm geeking out going, man, how that must be fucking amazing. He's like, yeah, yeah, I've been working with him a long time. It's great. Da, 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 da. Few minutes go by. I walk away. I hear him talking to somebody else. And he's like, yeah, it's fucking, you know, it sucks. It's uh, and he's bitching about working with this beetle because hmm. that's what you do when it's your job. You bitch about your job. Doesn't matter what your fucking job is. But he didn't want to be at a, a Christmas party in somebody's, you know, apartment having me fanboy him about the Beatles. He just wants to have a beer and bitch about his work like everybody else. So it was a turnoff for him to hear about what a fan I was and yada, yada. Hmm. Uh, uh, and he, you know, so I don't know. I, I think there is something to that. Who, who you know, they, they get their asses kissed enough. If you want yeah. if you want to, if you want to hang with them, treat them like shit. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. If I, hopefully I didn't fanboy out too much in this episode. So it's been fun <laughs> no, though. Perfect. Uh, this is great stories. Good stuff. So I do like to end each episode with a charity. Is there a charity that you work with or that you want to promote here at the end? You know, there's nothing, there's not a specific one. Uh, Cancer is always my, you know, go-to. That's the, you know, once that's eradicated, you're going to look back and go, how the hell did, you know, people dropping dead at the age of 40 over the stupid fucking disease. Mm -hmm. So anything involving that, but as far as personal charity, just the golden rule, you know, just be nice to the people around you and treat them the way you want to be treated. That's the, the that's the charity that I subscribe to. No, I love that. And you, and you must be doing that because you keep getting work. And so that's what I've noticed, like with these kinds of things, I mean, like with music and, and TV and movies and stuff, I mean, you could be super talented, but if you're an asshole, nobody wants to work with you. So you must yeah. be a good guy because you keep getting all this work in, the, in that like very competitive business. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this is now, I think my 30th year as a professional screenwriter, which is, uh, it's difficult. As you've heard from these stories, it's hard to get movies made mm-hmm. to be able to work consistently and work with Larry Charles and Fincher and, and the people that I've, you know, Sandler and whatever it's, it's fucking tough and you have to be a team player and you have to be nice and you have to be collaborative and not have a attitude, you know, and treat them like uh like equals or 
lesser and <laughs> you'll be okay. All right. You'll have to give me some more tips on that, but, uh, I'll do my best to try. I just get too excited sometimes. I know I probably need to hide it. It's probably, probably not good. So well, if you're collaborating, they want the truth. This yeah. Idea sucks, you yeah. Know? No, that's true. Yeah. If I was ever actually like working and not just doing an interview, I'm sure it would be, it would be totally different if we were somehow collaborating on a project with one of these legends. That's gotta be fun. There's gotta be times where you do pinch yourself though, right? You're like, this is weird. I'm, I'm hanging out with Adam Sandler, or David Fincher, Rob Zombie. I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's how you wind up doing uh, Jägermeister shots at 11 o'clock in the morning with Tommy Lee. Because, <laughs> you know, your 16 year old self would be like, dude, are you kidding me? Right. But tell that story, though, real quick, though, before before I let you go here. Tell that tell that story about you doing the show. That's kind of a funny little twist on that. Yeah, uh, he it just had come out that uh, Pam Anderson said that she uh, that Tommy had given her hepatitis C and that she only had five years to live. So then I go to his house and he says, do you want to do a Jaeger shot? I go, fuck yeah, we do the Jaeger shots. And he says, how about round two? And I go, absolutely. And he turns his back to me and fills him back up and he puts the shot glasses down. I don't know which one is mine anymore. So, you know, it's a game of Russian roulette. I'm not going to turn the shot down. I'm not going to say, is this one mine? Or, you know, rub the edge of the glass with my shirt. But I, I do the shot. But I'm so paranoid about this hepatitis C, which I'd never heard of being deadly, that I uh, I made an appointment with my doctor on the drive home and went in for a hep C test uh, immediately and was clear. And Pam Anderson now is still alive 15 years later. So I guess all of that was was nonsense. But uh, that is that 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 is a, a, a little bit of a shameful moment I had with with. Tommy, where I expected he was trying to poison me with his bodily fluids. Well, yeah, he probably didn't. I didn't know. Can can you get Hep C from just sharing a glass? Or who knows, man? I, I don't know. Well, yeah, obviously you didn't, so that's good. So you're still around. This is good. Good story. Had a happy ending. Yes. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for doing this, and uh, Dude, look forward to future awesome. projects. Cool. I, I love the way you do your your podcast, Chuck. You you ask questions that are that are slightly off center and really make me think so i appreciate that oh thank you that's nice to hear well yeah if you know anyone else that wants to do it let me know i'll call it rob zombie okay (laughs) all right thanks rich all right see See you later so nice of rich to give me a compliment like that a guy that helped make the dirt one of my favorite movies kind of surreal hearing that from him so he's just he's so down to earth i love chatting with him i loved his stories and hearing about the behind the scenes with the movies and tv Uh, I look forward to seeing what the future holds with his projects, especially that Sam Kinison movie. Uh, So make sure to follow Rich on social media to keep up with all his latest projects. And follow me too, if you're not already doing so, so that you can keep up with future episodes of the show. Uh, You can also subscribe to the show wherever you listen, and that will keep you in the loop too. If you want to support the show further, uh, your likes, comments, and shares help me out a lot. Or if you want to go all out, you can write me a review on iTunes. Thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And remember, shoot for the moon.